Hello and welcome to the Runecast. I am Maya Beckvall and this is episode two. And first of all, thank you all so much for the positive responses to the first episode. And also some apologies, this one has been delayed for a while because of a lot of hiccups along the way. But this episode is about the earliest runic inscriptions and uh, mainly I'll be talking to Lisbeth Eitmer about that, who is from the National Museum of Denmark. And I think if you think about it, writing is magic. What we're talking about in this episode are objects that are almost 2,000 years old. And on these objects we can see, for example, someone's name. There was an actual person who was called this. There were parents who yelled this name when it was time to come inside. There were friends who called this name out when they returned from a trip somewhere and so on. And this specific person learned how to write and learned how to write that name with this means of communicating that lasts for centuries or even millennia. Sometimes it's sad for people like me to think about how little we have left of the language or languages spoken in Northern Europe at this time, but it is amazing that we have anything at all. But we still get new finds and new information and new parts of the language. After the interview, I'll talk a bit about a new runestone from Norway, or, well, a very old runestone from Norway. But first, let's hear about spearheads and brooches. Well, I am now joined online by Lisbeth Nima from the National Museum in Denmark. Hi, Lisbeth. Hello. How are you doing today? I'm fine. And how are you? I'm fine. It's raining in Uppsala. <laughs> So, Lisbeth, you work at the National Museum in Denmark um, as a runologist, which is pretty uncommon. Well, basically, my job is to uh, to try and uh, find out whenever they find a new rooting inscription in Denmark, either by the help of metal detecting or in, in archaeological excavations. I'm uh, the one who... Uh, drive out into the landscape or sit by the microscope at my desk and try to find out what the runic inscriptions say. So uh, that's that's basically what I do. And then I do a lot of research and I write books and, uh, yeah, having a nice time at the museum. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a wonderful it job. Is. It's the world's best job. Um, oh, I'm jealous. <laughs> so the reason I've uh, asked... To talk to you specifically this time is because this episode is about the oldest runic yeah. inscriptions and you've worked with the oldest runic yeah. inscriptions. I was initially, I was trained as an archaeologist, prehistoric archaeology in, in Denmark. Um, but then I found out that if I wasn't going to bore myself to death, um, I would have to do something else. So I, I did a PhD thesis on the oldest runic inscriptions in the world, actually, which well, the, the oldest, the, the inscriptions from Iron Age, uh, Scandinavia, and then uh, a bit about the Viking Age inscriptions too. So what I did was that I tried to uh, sum up the chronology because there were a lot of maybes and um, things that that weren't very well investigated about the chronology of the inscriptions. So I tried to to put that thing in place. And then I also work with the function of these early inscriptions. So that was yeah, many years ago, but it was a very interesting work. Yes, and very important yeah. too. 
I think chronology is one of these recurring problems with work inscriptions. Because if you if you want to say um, something so, about anything, basically, if you want to say something about the linguistic developments or the function of the inscription or, or um, well, the development of, of the use of runic writing, you, you really need to have the basics right. So that's that's why I dived into that problem of, of trying to put these, all, all, all the inscriptions that you can't date by archaeological methods you'll have to date by typology. So that's what I've tried to do. Yes, and it becomes very much about um, relative to datable inscriptions, right, as well. Yeah, well, that's... Yeah. So you have one what, thing what, that what might... What you need to do is that you need to build a frame out of the archaeologically datable inscriptions, and then you and then, then you have a, a line, a, a sequence of, of datable artifacts, and then uh, you will also have a typology, and then you can put all the rest of the inscriptions that are not datable archaeologically, but they have a certain typology of runes, and then you can put them into, yeah, into these categories. Yeah, mm -hmm. maybe it sounds very boring, but... And yeah. you... <laughs> not <Okay>. to me. <laughs> that's nice. And when you see typology of runes, so that's the shape of the runes, yeah. basically, what kind yeah. of and, and that type of over e time. Rune that, or... that changes over time, and some of the uh, some of the rune forms are also uh, simultaneous, so that you will find different shapes of runes that belong to the same period. But over time, they will change. That's what you can build a typology on. So you can kind of you can assume that everyone who uses runes during a certain time will use the same type. Mm, it, it, that also depends on the regionality, because uh, rune rune carvers in, in uh, in different regions might use the different kinds of runes. Mm. Um, but each rune carver might want to uh, make some some nice additions just for ornamental use. And that's that's also, uh, yeah, with, uh, within the same inscription. So you might have different types of runes within the same inscription. So it's a bit difficult. Uh, the development of the single runes was um, was having happening more rapidly than the um, linguistic changes, uh, or you, mm. or at least you can rely on on the differing shapes of the rooms more than you can rely on the li linguistic developments. So, how old are the oldest runic inscriptions? Well, uh, the oldest runic inscription that we have is from the middle of the second century AD, and it's a small comb made of antler, and it was found in a bog in the Danish island of Fyn where it was sacrificed with a lot of personal equipment and weapons and uh, so on, presumably after uh, a large battle in, in the 2nd century. And the inscription says Harya, which is um, probably a male name uh, that refers to um, army here, or it could be the name for comb. We're not sure about that. Is that... Would you say that's a typical... Kind of inscription yeah. for the old, older ones. Most of the yeah, well, th that was the first inscription that we know of. We don't know when when the runes were invented. I think not very very much earlier than that. I say that because we know that at that time period, the contact with the Roman Empire was at its highest. Uh, a lot of Roman imports reached the uh, the northern areas at that time. So it would be it would be very imaginable that. The runes also reached the, the northern hemisphere 
at the time when they also mm. had a lot of other Roman influence. Yeah, and because a lot of these early inscriptions, they are kind of like on smaller objects yeah. and just like one word or yeah, a name. That's right. Is that right? And we find a lot of inscriptions also on the weapon equipment from other uh, weapon sacrifices that we know of in Jutland and on some of the women's jewelries and so forth. So they are very short inscriptions and mostly they consist of just a single name or uh, a single name in combination with a, with a verb. So it's not, you, you shouldn't expect a large or, or elaborate uh, literature stories about what was going on in the Iron Age. So it's... Uh, <laughs> so it's very, very short inscriptions, and most of them are, are names, personal names. Are they mainly male names? Yes, most, most of the ones that we have preserved are male names. And it maybe has something to do with the fact that the inscriptions are made of, of the craftsmen of the period. Mm. So if, even if you find a name on a woman's, woman's brooch, it would be a male name because, well, mostly the males were the craftsmen or the goldsmiths of in that period. Yes, that makes sense. I, I just never thought about it that way. <laughs> I didn't realize how, how often there are male yeah. names on the kind of female. But you also have to take into well. consideration that we have about in, in the first period of 250 years up until maybe 400, we have just 15 inscriptions preserved, and that's a fairly small amount if you compare it with a time period of 250 years, it would be like uh, one inscription every fifth year or something. And that, and of course, that's not enough simply for keeping a, a, a writing tradition alive. So what we don't know is what else did they write. We have all the names and craftsmen inscriptions on weapons and uh, women's jewelry and so on, but, uh, and, and, on, um, and on tools too. But we don't know what they write, what they wrote on on organic materials. We have just a very, very few items of organic material that are preserved. So they might have written longer messages just to, well, for messages, written messages sent from one to another, but we, we don't know what they were all about. But I'm sure that they must have been there because otherwise you wouldn't be able to keep a tradition alive. No, I, I completely agree. And, and this is always a problem yeah. of course that yeah. leather and wood and things like that simply disappear then then you could argue that well that would also mean that you can't say anything about these inscriptions at all because when there are so few and there are so maybe thousands of inscriptions that we don't know anything about you're not able to say anything about who used them and what was the purpose of these inscriptions at all but then if you look at what kind of objects that you find the inscriptions of, because you have from the Iron, from the uh, late Roman Iron Age, uh, you have, of course, a lot of archaeological artifacts preserved. You have pottery, you have a, a lot of brooches, not just silver brooches, but also bronze brooches, and you had a, have a lot of equipment. Uh, but where you find the inscriptions is mm -hmm. on, on the silver brooches, on the, on the very, very, in the very, very rich graves and on the parade equipment from, from the army and so on. So that says something about that. Mm. Um, the elite used the runic script, not every peasant in every little village, in every little corner of, 
wherever in, in, in Jutland or anything. Yes, you mean so you would kind of expect, for example, like maybe yeah. you'd find something on pottery or something. Yeah. If this yeah. was a wider, and we haven't found a single shirt of pottery with runes on them, on it. We have uh, just one, just one single pot from from the UK somewhere, but I think it's a migra- migration period container used for as an urn in a grave that has a, a runic inscription. That's the only single one. And there would have been thousands and thousands of pots and containers that could have had rooms on them, but well, no one, no, nothing is there. Do you think they actually read it? Yeah. Like how, what do you think I about think, the literacy um, of this time? I think many of the craftsmen maybe would have been able to write and read with rooms because they were employed with a magnet, they were living with him, and uh, they were sort of the intelligent people of the time. They would meet with, with other craftsmen and exchange ideas, and uh, they would be at the, uh, the large fairs and, and uh, meet a lot of new people and uh, have a lot of new ideas all the time. Uh, and I think the mag- magnets uh, would, would learn it, well, just because it was part of the cultural codex that you would learn how to read and write. And maybe the magnet's mm. children would all learn how to read and write with runes. Maybe they didn't use it very much because we also know that it was a an oral tradition in, in society that they that they learn all the stories by heart. But of course they would they would also uh, have well the ability to to write their names at least with runes. Yes, and yes, because it, it's not until much later yeah. we get yeah, actual long later. inscriptions preserved. That is. Uh, of any we kind. Some, we have some. Um, yes, of course. Uh, written evidence that there might have been some longer inscriptions. Uh, we have some, some evidence from um, the bog find in Kauhul, where they, they say in the the 18th century that oh well we found this this very 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 thin piece of wooden plate, where there were runic characters on it, but. Uh, Unfortunately, it got lost, and they were well, they were not trained in, in in preserving things as we are today. So, so that might have been one of these messages that that we miss today. But, but maybe if we want to go and dig in some of the rocks, we will mm. find some more of these messages. I remember the last time we spoke about this, you talked about um, yeah. these were they lances. Which yeah, had the yeah. same name on them, and that's we the kind of found, maker's mark, right? We made some very large excavations in, in the dog of Ilorot Oda in Jutland um, 20 or 30 years ago, maybe even longer. And uh, they found, I think, 9,000 objects or something like that. And among all these finds were nine runic inscriptions and uh, on, on personal equipment and on um, tools and on weapons. And some of the weapon equipment was standardized because it was a standardized army. And uh, on two of the lancets of exactly the same type, they found two exactly alike runic inscriptions with the name Wagnido. And the funny thing is that a few years later, when they were going through the finds that they had been digging out of Limos on Fyn maybe a century earlier, they found a lancet of exactly the same type as the ones that were found in Ilorot Oddal, and they found the exact same inscription on it, Vagnido. 
So we have three of these lambs heads with exactly the same inscription and of exactly the same type, which, to my mind at least, leads to the fact that these names are not the names of the, of the weapon that you will find some evidence of in, in, uh, in the Norse literature where, where, they have, where they give their swords uh, names. But rather, I think that it's the, it's the name of the guy who owned the factory or the weaponsmith himself that, um, that is named or mm. uh, mentioned on these weapons. And you can find support for that theory also in, in the weapon from, from the Roman factories, because they also have names stamped into the uh, hot iron when, when they left the factory. In order to make sure to the buyer that this is quality, you can rely on this sword. It's it's made of of this and and this swordsmith, and it's a it's a very fine quality. Some of it's the some of the names on on the Roman swords are placed on so high up on on the shoulder of the sword that it would have been hidden when the sword has been equipped with a, with a handle. So the inscription mm. would have been gone, vanished, when, when the sword was in use. And that's the same thing with some of the birches, exactly. right? That you have it kind of on the back of the brooch. Where you can't see it when you're wearing it. When you're wearing the brooch, but when you've been buying it or when you've been showing it to some of your friends, uh, and, oh, well, this is this, is this uh, very famous goldsmith, and he, he made me this brooch. So there you have it, here's his name, and then I'll, I'll put it on, and everybody will remember, of course, with, oh, she had, <laughs> she had money enough or <laughs> power enough to get this brooch from, from this very famous goldsmith. <laughs> there would be a lot of stats in that. Well, I uh, asked you also to, if you have any, well, not favorite inscriptions, but any specific yeah. inscriptions well, you'd all like nice, to of course. highlight. Um, well, of course, they, they are all nice. I like these large brooches that the, that the women wore. And there's one in particular that I think is, uh, is very clever because the, the runes are so... Uh, the rune carver has been so clever when he's put the runes onto the object. And it says, um, Lamo Talgida, which, is, uh, which means uh, Lamo, the lame one, carved. And it's so nicely done because... He has been very aware that Namo Talgida are two separate words. So in order to, to show that, he has um, written his name, Lamo, Lamo from, from uh, right to left. Or, and then he has written uh, the verb Talgida from the left to the right so that they meet in the middle. And then he's made a separation mark. And I think it's, uh, very, it's very mm -hmm. clever that he's done it like that. And it's also funny that this uh, that his name is the lame one, because it it makes you think of Virgil Smith, who was uh, held captive um, <laughs> yeah. by someone, who, and he he wanted he was uh, he was going to make all these um, yeah all these things for his Yes, he had his he had his hamstrings cut. Ugh. So that's uh, I, I like mm -hmm. that aspect. Um. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we end? Well, we talked about didn't forget to ask about the different, <laughs> different traditions in Denmark and Norway and Sweden. Because in Denmark, you will find only weapons mm. sacrifices and, uh, and rich graves containing you know, the women's brooches with 
manuscripts and so on, but you don't get that very much in Norway and Sweden. But what they do have in Norway are all these uh, runestones that might have been erected already from the beginning of the moonlighting era. So I think they have at least 10 very early runestones from, mm. from the late Roman period, uh, the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century in Norway. What's also interesting is that they just had a brand new one in Norway. And they found a new, newly discovered <laughs> runestone in Norway. So that's what we're looking very much forward to, all us runologists, yes. that, that we get some more information on that find. Is it also a question of kind of the places you find them? Because Denmark has a lot of bogs, for example. The organic materials will be preserved in the bogs. And that's also why we have some of the tools that we know of have been uh, have been uh, taken from the bogs. So, but it's also a, a matter of what they did in the Iron Age, because they didn't put things into bogs in, in Norway or Sweden in the Iron Age. Uh, they did something else. They had a, they have a lot of graves instead of of putting the equipment in the box, and then they have the room stones first in Norway and then later on also in Sweden. And then when we are talking about the brachiates, these small golden pendants, or small golden pendants there with with moonlight inscriptions on them too, we find a lot of them in, in Denmark uh, and some in, in Gotland, a very rich Baltic island in Sweden. And, and in Denmark, you will find them also in the bogs and in the, in, the, mm-hmm. in the deposits. But in Norway, you will find them in the graves. So it's also a matter of what they did in the Iron Age and, and all the yeah the cultural differences there. I think with that, so I welcome. will say thank you yeah. so very much <laughs> for yeah doing this interview. So thank you very much, Lisbeth. So as Lisbeth Imas said. The Danish early runic inscriptions tend to be short messages on small objects, while Norway, on the other hand, has some of the earliest runestone inscriptions. And those are longer, but because of that, they're also hard to interpret. Remember, we have next to no other direct sources for this language, so as we interpret a runic inscription, we're basing the interpretation on other inscriptions. And... Interpreting an inscription is an ongoing process, and runologists are constantly reinterpreting and rereading inscriptions. So when we get a new find, it's exciting for so many reasons, not least because it opens new doors to all the other inscriptions we already have. And one of the latest and most exciting finds of an inscription in the older Futhark came last year, uh, but it was only revealed this year in October. So in Everby, Pardon my Norwegian, which isn't Norwegian at all, it's very Swedish. In Everby, about 100 kilometers north of Oslo, um, the married couple Randi and Olav Shie had a nice flat stone in their garden uh, where they liked to sit and have coffee in the sun. They'd kept it after tearing down an old house on their property uh, where the stone had been part of the stairs leading up to the front door. And it was just a nice stone, they wanted to keep it around. And then at one point, they noticed some strange lines down the side of it. Now, this could have been uh, the start of a, a horror movie where they, some kind of ancient evil comes up, but that's uh, not what runes do. Runes are ancient good, not ancient evil. Because, of course, this was a runestone. Uh, we don't know where it originally stood. 
Uh, this fate is fairly common for runestones because they're nice big chunks of stone. Uh, so they're great for reusing as building material, especially once the runes have faded a bit and people don't know what this is anymore, but you still have this big, nice rock. And uh, a quite common find place for runestones is inside the walls of medieval churches. So the Elbe stone, it hasn't been fully read and interpreted. Uh, there are runes on two sides of it, but only one of these sides has been published so far, which is important to remember. Uh, that inscription has been read, and I will read the transliteration in the way it stands. It has been read as Lu Irilaz Raskaz Runos. And this is, uh, according to Norwegian linguists who've looked at this, it could be translated to Cut Runes, Capable Rune Master. So it seems to be four words. Uh, the one word that is easy here is the word runos, because that's our friends, the runes. That is pretty much beyond that. What's spelled erilaz here is almost certainly the word erilaz, uh, which is a word that's attested from quite a lot of other Proto-Norse inscriptions. Unfortunately, there's no consensus as to what the word actually means exactly. Um, so the rune master here in this translation is a guess. What we can say it is a title of some sort, not a name, but it's something you can call someone and it's probably something you'd be proud to be. Etymologically, it's a cognate to the modern English word earl, uh, which in the Scandinavian languages is Jarl. Remember this about the word erilaz. If you see someone being very sure about what this word means, you should be a bit wary. We don't know what it means. And then there's the word raskaz, and that's a very exciting word because it may well be the earliest attestation of a word that will become rask in the Scandinavian languages. And rask uh, is a word that means ready or able or quick. It's a positive word. There have been etymologies of this word which required a w at the beginning of this word, so it would be a vrask of some sort. Uh, but from this find, it looks like it will be in favour of an etymology without the w, because there's no w in this inscription. The hardest part of this inscription is the l, l-u, is the translation. If that's what the runes say, which is a bit uncertain, uh, it could come from an unattested Proto-Norse verb that starts with lu, uh, and that would mean to cut, and corresponding to an old Icelandic word lija, which means to beat and things like that, uh, and you also have it in the modern Swedish noun uh, lije, which means scythe. As you can probably hear from the translation and from just running through these four words, if it is four words, when you interpret an inscription like this, you base it on a number of different methods. So with erilaz, for example, you compare to other inscriptions. You look, what else do we have? What other contexts do we have? Of course, you use etymology. So you use reconstructed words that are reconstructed based on what we know of how this language has evolved. And then you also use the context of the inscription itself. So we have a person, Erilaz. This person is being Raskaz, because that's the same case. So we have this Raskaz Erilaz, this capable Erilaz. 
who is doing something with runos, and then we really expect a verb. Because if you're doing something with runes, you want a verb that has to do with cutting or writing, something like that, right? And that's why when you read L-U, the runes, you want to find etymologically some word that might have to do with that. All this is very preliminary. Uh, there is a whole part of the runestone that hasn't been published, so there's context we don't have yet. Once more runologists have a chance to read the runes and give their interpretations, there'll be more of a discussion. There might be fights, who knows. For now, we have this wonderful stone that has a lot to tell us. I'll put some links uh, on the webpage to some Norwegian uh, language uh, news stories that talk about this inscription and also have a 3D scan of it. I have to give some thanks to my colleague Marco Bianchi, who did a breakdown of what we know about the Ørby stone for the Uppsala Rund Forum Facebook page. I based this little overview on that. And with that, this episode of the Runecast is done. Finally! So I hope you'll listen to the next episode, where I think we'll get into runestones a bit more. Um, so until then, stay ruined! The Runecast is made by me, Maya Beckvall, and is funded by Riksbanken's Jubileumsfond, the Swedish Foundation for Humanities and Social Sciences, and with support from Uppsala Runic Forum at the Department of Scandinavian Languages at Uppsala University. You can find us on Twitter at RunecastPod in one word, and on Uppsala Runic Forum's Facebook page, which is Uppsala Rune Forum. Think Rune Forum, but without the E. Run Forum. <laughs> more more digging in bogs, that's generally good idea.